every, every marriage uh, may experience a momentary malaise, a, a sense of routine, a, a, a gentle but per- pervasive sense of, I would almost call it discontent, sometimes over the slightest of offenses and personality quirks. It's then that the husband and wife need to step back and take a big, long look, not at the flaws and not at the personality quirks, uh, not at the individual expressions of personalities or even flaws, but rather at the wonderful character, the ministries received from each other as married spouses. I know Debbie and I have had to do that on time, and maybe it's made worse during our time of stay at home and we're uh, under each other's feet a little more. Uh, We're in each other's space, and, and we need to take a step back and evaluate, look at what God has done by the character by the by the ministries of the person that uh, that I love so it is with what Christ has done for us to, to look at what God has done in our life and really stand in awe of God and be able to see all that God has done so first with me from Titus chapter 3 and thank you uh, for the reading of scripture today that's a really neat uh, opportunity to see one of our church families but look at who we were and and there's a very stark description given in the text he says that we were foolish that is we weren't marked by reason the the mind was shelved Uh, there have been times in my life when I've wondered what in the world was I thinking when obviously I was not thinking And that's a bit of this idea that there's that absence of thought regarding action. He says that, secondly, we were disobedient. There was the refusal to comply with what we know to be right. It's the stubborn, resistant spirit that we know God and we know His Word, but in fact we refuse to obey His Word. He further says that we are led astray. That is to be, we're misled from a proper belief or a course of action. And so often it is that we are misled by wrong thinking, by truth that is errant, that really is inappropriate for us and would be unhelpful to us. He then In a graduated fashion, he walks through this description of what we were before we came to Christ. He speaks of us as being slaves, those that are dominated as a slave is, to passions, that is to evil cravings, and to pleasures, that is desires that either are sinful or good desires that often then are expressed out of balance. So he speaks about being slaves to sin. And then... Fifth, he says that we were passing the day in malice and envy. The word passing the day, you can see the minute hand on a watch move forward. And it speaks about how we spend our time in specific ways, and he describes that as being directed towards malice and envy. And then finally, he says we were hated and hated hating. When I, when I look at that, I, I think, my, 
what, what, a, what an awful picture of what we were. That is not a pretty picture. Even the best of us, in fact, were the worst. It's reminiscent of a number of texts of Scripture. It was not long ago that we studied Romans chapter 3 where Paul speaks in metaphor about us as sinners. And he said, there's no fear of God before them in their eyes. Their, their tongues are, are the poison of asps. Uh, there is bitterness and cursing. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And he says, there is no fear of God before them in their eyes. All uh, uh, the worst that could be expressed is expressed in our sinful nature. And we are apart from God. We are without hope. We are lost and we are condemned. And, uh, it's, I think, appropriate for us to say, look at what we were. We were lost. We were apart from God. We were in a very desperate situation, a hopeless situation. And we could not help being those things. But then, secondly, from Titus chapter 3, look at what God manifested. One of the great little words in Scripture, it's a three-letter word, a conjunction. It's the word, but. It's a really important word. You'll find it there in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. It's a form of the same word there, that word appeared, as in Titus 2.11 that we looked at last week. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men. This goodness and loving kindness of God appeared. Goodness is a word that speaks of the quality of being warm-hearted, of being gentle, of being sympathetic. It's a little like probably what you've seen, as I have seen uh, news reports of frontline medical providers who are in the throes of care for COVID-19 patients and the, the heart of compassion that is often expressed toward those suffering with uh, the, the virus. It speaks about that gentle, sympathetic nature. It's even translated this word in Galatians 5, 22, uh, regarding the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit of gentleness. He speaks about the loving kindness, and that's the quality of being marked or motivated by concern for those suffering. And then he speaks about those qualities, goodness and loving kindness, appearing. It's coming into view. It's being manifested. But it's not appearing as a, a shimmering quality or as a disembodied quality, but rather it is in God our Savior, in the presence, in the manifestation of God, that is the person of Jesus Christ, in His incarnation. And then, most spectacularly, it is manifested at the cross of Calvary. It, it, it really is helpful for us to see Look at what God has manifested toward us who are sinful. He has manifested His goodness, His loving kindness. And He has done that at such significant cost. He has done that in the fact that the immortal God would become mortal humanity. We would see it 
in the fact that the eternally righteous son would be numbered as a transgressor. He would become sin for us. So great is his compassion for us. The goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. And appeared in the incarnation, appeared in the death of Christ at Calvary. And then thirdly with me in the text, look at what God did. In, in the older King James that I memorized as a boy long ago, uh, it's one of the very clear verses I can remember memorizing as an Awana clubber. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He has saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Uh, some modern translations, the ESV, the NASB, uh, puts He saved us as the very first item in the verse, though it occurs later in the text. He saved us. Of course, that word saved is a biblical word. It, it speaks of rescue. And perhaps in this task, text, what would be good for us to do? What did he rescue us from? And I think the emphasis of the text is that he rescued us from his description way back in verse 3. He saved us. And then notice, as we begin to walk through the phrases of the text, it is not out of works of righteousness. Literally, the preposition, uh, 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 not according to works, is literally not from the source of works. Humanity, in devising religion, has devised all kinds of works by which he thinks he will be saved. Some of those are the work of baptism. Some are the work of uh, providing care and sustenance to those less fortunate than us. It's church membership. It's all kinds of rites and deeds that we think that somehow in doing them that God will rescue us. However, Paul says here is the standard by which we are saved. It is not out of works. He says, rather, it is according to his mercy. The standard by which God operates towards sinners is mercy. It, it may be helpful for you to look at various texts of Scripture that speak of this. A, a good one is the text in latter uh, Exodus 33 and then into Exodus 34. God passes by Moses. Moses is hidden in the cleft of the rock. And it speaks of God being all of, all of his goodness passing by. And, and Moses is impressed. Here is a God of loving kindness, of mercy and grace to sinners. You see, God saves us. Not because there's anything good in us. Not because there's anything good that we have done. But rather, totally and absolutely according to his mercy. His impulse towards sinners is not to immediately judge us as sinners. It is rather that he might manifest mercy to us. That is the standard by which he operates towards sinners. Another phrase then is given. He speaks through the washing of regeneration. The, the, the washing mentioned here is obviously speaking symbolically or in metaphor. He's not talking about a physical washing. He's not talking about being washed through baptism. 
He is rather speaking in symbol, in metaphor, and he speaks about uh, regeneration as something that produces a spiritual cleansing. I know when I've been working outside and I'm all hot and sweaty and I don't smell awfully good, uh, I just love being able to take a shower and be, be cleansed. Ezekiel 36, 25 speaks, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Or New Testament in 1 Corinthians 6, a fairly familiar text of Scripture. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Uh, one of the great realities of Scripture is that our conscience, our life, our existence may be cleansed that is all of the guilt all of the defiled conscience that we know exists that all of that may be washed clean not, not washed physically but though our sins be as scarlet the prophet isaiah said our sins may be as white as snow there is cleansing for sinners one of the great messages i, I want to understand myself and i want you to understand and also for us to understand the, the power of being able to communicate and witness to people that their sins may be forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, so far, the psalmist says, has he removed our transgressions from us. And he does not, not do that uh, with some kind of divine magic. Rather, he does that in the full payment of God the Father upon every sinner in the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. He is able to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And that because full payment for sin has been made, all I need do is receive that gift by faith. That, to be washed, the, the, the washing of regeneration. And then the text says, by the renewal or through the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Here he speaks about uh, something made new and that by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then to help us understand what he has done in the magnitude of the gift, he speaks of the Holy Spirit whom he richly poured out upon us. The word poured out literally means to be given without restraint or to fully experience. We don't need a second blessing of the Holy Spirit because He has been richly poured out upon us. The word rich is a word that would describe great opulence. It means great abundance. Uh, it means extreme quantity. And, and maybe to aptly illustrate that, I, maybe it's your child or my grandchild and it's the first occasion that you allow them to fill their own cup of milk. And so they grab the milk carton and they begin pouring the, the milk in the cup and 
typically of a child, it would be full to overflowing. That's literally the idea of the Holy Spirit being poured out richly upon us. And then notice in the text, he then adds another prepositional phrase that further qualifies. This has been given through Jesus Christ, our Savior. All of this, mercy, regeneration, renewal, the, the, the rich presence of the Spirit of God in the life of every believer, all of that comes through Jesus, our Savior. All exclusively through the appearance of God, our Savior. Jesus Christ at the cross of Calvary. All of that we gain through Him. All this is ours by the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. It is for this reason that again and again we return to the wellspring of our life, which is the death and the resurrection of Christ. Never can we consider enough all that God has done for us in Christ at Calvary. To think and to imagine that the sinless one became sin for us. I think of so many texts of Scripture. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that you through His poverty might become rich. The sinless one becoming sin for us, so that we the, the, the unrighteous ones might become righteous in Him. And there's no limit to the grace of God upon our life. Never should we lose sight of the glory of being saved. I, I myself have been saved, if I use that term. I, I came to Christ as a 10-year-old boy. That means I've known Christ 55 years. That's a long time. And, and yet, I, I find in my life, I, though it's the greatest experience, the greatest event, the greatest relationship that one could ever experience, my heart grows cold to that. I take for granted what Christ has done for me. I lose sight. I don't keep it at the forefront of my thinking. You see, never should we lose sight of the glory of being saved, of being redeemed from all that we were and all that we would have experienced apart from God in hell. Every day I awake, every moment I live, every night I lay my head on my pillow. I must remind myself and bring freshly to mind, look at what God has done. He saved us, not according to our works, but rather according to His mercy. He has regenerated us. He has made us alive. He's renewed our life. He allows us to reconstruct a life that was damaged by sin, but now may bring honor and glory to Christ and is good for me today. He has poured out richly the Spirit and He has done that all through Jesus Christ. Look at what God did. I've coined it this way. God mercied me, a sinner. God washed me, the defiled. He redeems. God renewed me. The dead one, he regenerated. God gave me his spirit. Amply and richly he gave the spirit. God inherits me. He makes me an heir. And then we arrive at the 
read the last phrase of this paragraph, so that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And then, lest we forget or maybe brag, somehow become confused, Paul inserts uh, an adverbial uh, participle, an adverbial clause when he says, being justified by his grace for all of that. He says, remember that you are justified by grace. And then insert our recent definition for grace, that grace is God's unilateral intervention into the most hopeless situation in a way that he alone can act with results that he alone can accomplish. Now, I know that during times of uh, being sequestered at home, uh, being apart from our normal routine. I know one of the, uh, I've mentioned it before, one of the difficult things is having a service through electronic means and not being able to rub shoulders and interact with each other. Even uh, what may be rampant discouragement, even depression that exists in society because our job's been lost uh, we don't have the normal interaction with people. We're, we're isolated. We're, we're alone. It reminds me of the psalmist, it, several occasions in Psalm 42 and 43, where he asks himself the question, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I will yet praise him again, my Savior and my God. God, our Savior, is good, manifesting loving kindness to the worst of sinners, to us, to me, to you. So, in response, then what do we do? How do we respond? Well, first we look, receive Christ. One of the interesting things of doing our online ministries is seeing the different people that piggyback on our YouTube Live or upon our live stream broadcasts, seeing people all over the place, and maybe you're that person who has somehow, by providence, have landed on this live stream and you've never trusted Jesus Christ. You've never understood what you were, that you were a hell-bound, filthy, lost sinner. You've never looked at what God did in the death of Christ. Remember that you've been redeemed by grace. This great work of Jesus at the cross of Calvary. So let's look. Let's receive this great, great gospel of Christ. And that can be simple as simply like the publican described in the gospels who said, I won't even look to heaven. I'll simply say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I trust Jesus Christ who died for me. I believe he is God in flesh, my Savior and my God. I would further encourage you, as much as cessationist Baptists can, in a non-charismatic fashion, to adore God. Uh, he, the Spirit has been richly poured out upon us. Our, our cup really is full. 
And there needs to be that sense where our heart is full as we respond to God in praise. Quite literally, we come and we adore Christ the Lord. It's a little like probably some of our newlywed couples are. They, they're in the early stages of, of married life. And there's that fresh adoration of husband for wife and wife for husband. Or maybe even old timers like Debbie and me. Debbie is sitting off in the wings here this morning. But there is still that sense where I adore her and she adores me. Far beyond that, we, we've been saved from eternal damnation. And our joy knows no bounds. There, there needs to be that articulation of praise before God, the giving of our life to God, the glad service that we would provide for others because Christ has loved us in similar fashion. And so we adore. I would suggest thirdly that we, that we preach. I know that not everybody likes to preach. Not everybody would be a preacher in the formal sense of that in a church setting. But we need to preach the gospel to ourselves and to the lost. I've asked the 1024 leaders if they desire to look at a resource that we've attached to their lessons it comes from a book by Jerry Bridges and just a couple of sentences from that book. Uh, Paul wrote that Christ died that we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose again. To live no longer for ourselves, that's the essence of discipleship. That phrase sums up all that could be included under the phrase of disciplines or holiness or service. But what is it that will motivate us to live not for ourselves, but for him? Paul said, it is the love of Christ that compels us. The idea of that word is to press in upon so as to impel or to urge or drive forward by the exertion of a strong moral pressure. Wiest in his word study says that the word is captured when it says, the love presses me in upon all sides and holds me to one end, prohibiting me from considering any other course. It wraps itself around me in tenderness and gives me an impelling motive. See, the love of Christ quite literally it impels us and walls us in as we no longer live for ourselves, but rather for Christ who died for us and rose again. And Every decision I make, every act of ministry that I will pursue, every prayer that I offer, and every offering that I give, every opportunity to encourage by my words, literally must flow from the love of Christ for us, that we no longer live for ourselves, but rather we live for the one who died for us and rose again. And so every Every moment we live and every action we take is rooted in the love of Christ. We preach that gospel to ourselves today to, to root all we are in that great work. And then think of all the people around us. All, all the people around us. The, the number of people in our own state who have died from the COVID virus. By estimates, taking a minimum of a decade of life that they normally would have lived and many of them 
moving into eternity apart from Christ, lost and without hope. Thinking about the number of people who are moral, who are religious, and who have built a life, a good life, based upon the reality they, they think their works will gain entry into heaven. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves and then widely with a heart of compassion to people all around us who do not know Jesus Christ. So let's look. Let's adore. Let's preach this wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ.